Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only Rizza for our dope theme music. Last week in an emotional ceremony in the White House Rose Garden, Joe Biden honored the various police forces that responded to the insurrection at the Capitol in January by signing a bill into law awarding those officers congressional gold medals. As I watched the coverage of that ceremony on TV, I kept thinking about the man who wasn't there. A former longtime cable host I would have loved to hear from about the courage of those cops and what took place at the Capitol on January 6th, because that former broadcaster was once a Capitol Hill police officer himself, and because his historical knowledge about and reverence for the institution of Congress and the peaceful transfer of power that were both threatened that day would have made his perspective particularly valuable in explaining why the ceremony in the Rose Garden was so moving and so necessary as the country continues to grapple with the meaning and implications of the insurrection. But the truth is, I've been missing the voice of that former broadcaster all throughout the dark and dangerous period we've all been living through since the birth of the big lie about the 2020 election, a voice that, for more than 20 years, was among the most recognizable on television, ringing out more or less every weeknight on MSNBC, sounding something like this. I'm Chris Matthews. Let's play hardball. Chris Matthews is one of the few guests we could have on this podcast who really does need no introduction, so I'm not going to waste many words or much of your time on this one. Suffice to say, Chris's life and career have both been genuinely epic, spanning stints in Jimmy Carter's White House, in the office of Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill, in the pages of the San Francisco Examiner and San Francisco Chronicle, where he worked respectively as the Washington Bureau Chief for many years and as a nationally syndicated columnist, and of course, those two decades on the air at MSNBC. He's also the author of nine best-selling books, the most recent of which came out in June, a memoir entitled This Country, My Life in Politics and History. Matthews had been planning to retire from MSNBC after the 2020 election. Instead, his departure came abruptly in March of last year when he resigned after facing and owning up to accusations of having made inappropriate comments about a female guest four years earlier. Matthews and I hadn't spoken at any length since then, and I had a feeling that our reunion would turn into a serious talkathon between his book, which covers all the phases of his career, so many of them fascinating, everything that's gone on in politics since he stepped away from the anchor desk, and the rush of news in just the past couple of weeks, from the COVID Delta variant surge and its political implications, to the progress of Biden's infrastructure push through the Senate and its remaining challenges in the House, to the New York Attorney General's devastating sexual misconduct investigation of Andrew Cuomo to the ongoing existential crisis over whether America will remain a democratic republic as the Republican Party continues its descent into autocracy, both of which thrown into high relief by the kickoff of the January 6th Select Committee investigation in the House and the disgusting treatment of those heroic Capitol cops by all kinds of people on the right. Well, let's just say that Chris and I had a lot of ground to cover and cover it we did in a conversation so sweeping that it demanded to be broken in half and posted as a two-part episode, the first part of which you are listening to right now, and the second of which will be dropping tomorrow. That's Wednesday, August 11th. So without any further ado, let's get to it as we welcome the man, the myth, the legend, Chris Matthews, to a space where we play hardball too, but where the arena extends beyond Washington, D.C. to the whole wide world being buffeted by the traumas and dramas of Helen Highwater. COVID-19 is a national challenge, and it must come together. We have to come together, all of us together, as a country to solve it. Just two states, Florida and Texas, account for one-third 
of all new COVID-19 cases in the entire country. Just two states. Look, we need leadership from everyone. If some governors aren't willing to do the right thing to beat this pandemic, then they should allow businesses and universities who want to do the right thing to be able to do it. I say to these governors, please help. But if you aren't going to help, at least get out of the way of the people who are trying to do the right thing. So there's Joe Biden talking about the state of COVID-19 and, and hitting a couple of governors a little directly. One of them got kind of pissed off about it, Deron DeSantis. We'll talk about that in a second, <laughs> but we're here mostly because we want to spend some time with my old friend, Chris Matthews. Look at Chris Matthews. There he is on Nantucket, yep. living the life. Yep. The man who's, what book is this of yours? But Chris has just written a book, uh, came out a little earlier this summer called This Country, My Life in Politics and History. Came out in June. How many books? This is nine. Number nine. I mean, I think maybe because I'm just such a fan of yours and, and we're friends and, and I'll say I'm a sucker for Chris Matthews, a guy who did a lot for my career at various times. I think maybe like the memoir is the one I like best. I mean, the, I mean, you go back to the original hardball was, you know, the first book was kind of defining mm-hmm. for you. But this book that is is like Homer's Odyssey, right? It's like it's Proust. It's like the whole ball of yarn, right? Yeah. And it's not about the time on television. It's really. Yeah. You know, I got this idea from William L. Shire, the guy who wrote The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. He was uh, fired by CBS in the late 40s because he was too left for Bill Pale. He was a, he's a very liberal guy. Yeah. And I realized that that was a break for him because in his case, he went out and wrote The Rise and Fall and the, probably the biggest bestseller next to the Bible that's ever been written because he had the time to go into the archives and dig up all this stuff to back up what he lived through himself as a reporter in the 30s. And when you read all his books, hardly anything about television or radio. It's all before and after. And I found when I wrote my book, most of what I had to talk about, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the first election in South Africa, real election, the Belfast treaties of the Good Friday Accord and all that, and even the Pope's funeral were far more interesting than anything I was able to do on the air. They were real reporting jobs. It was the real history coming face to face with people that are changing history, whether in Budapest or wherever the hell I was. I want to talk about this book and about the life a fair amount on this on this episode of Hell and High Water, but I, I guess I haven't seen you in a while, and you look great, and it's great to see you. And I've been looking forward to doing this uh, as soon as the book came out. I was like, we got to get Matthews on here, and I'm so glad you're here. But I do want to talk about some news stuff because one of the things that America misses, that the world misses, is the nightly cadences, the the dulcet tones of Chris Matthews, helping us all understand what's going on in our world. And you know, for a lot of people, the show was a habit. For a lot of people, it was like a, I mean, an addictive habit. There are a lot of people who were fully addicted to hardball, like didn't think their their weekday was complete if they didn't get to see you, Chris, and, and your guests kind of talking about what was going on and helping them, as I said, understand it. I just played Joe Biden talking about COVID. And I've been, I've been wanting to hear what you think about all this stuff for a while, but that's a good place to start. How do you think he's doing on the whole? I mean, COVID is the main reason maybe that he got elected and his political strength has to a large extent, if you look at the numbers, has derived primarily from people's sense that he's been doing a good job. And now this Delta variant situation, you know, is testing everyone. People who thought, hey, maybe this is over now don't think it's over anymore. And I wonder what you think about, A, how Biden's done on COVID, but B, more broadly, what you make of the first seven months of the Biden administration. Well, there's more to a presidency than the person in the title role. Sure. Like a movie. There's a lot more. The direction, the production, PR. I think overall, his presidency is so far above what he was able to do in his career before. It has discipline, focus. 
It seems to have a regular flow of news coming out on secondary issues. In other words, to keep all the constituency groups satisfied, there seems to be this regular flow of stuff that's important, but not necessarily front page. So that's getting done. His gaps are minimal. They're not important. I mean, he's always going to make them. Everybody does, especially a guy who's pretty spontaneous, but very disciplined. I give credit because I don't know any better to Ron Klain, his chief of staff, who I believe is replicating the work, the good work done by James A. Baker with Reagan. He kept Reagan away from the Reader's Digest. He got him away from too much spontaneity and distraction and focused on the two issues Reagan ran on, which was cutting taxes, size of government, and building up defense, ultimately with Star Wars. In this case, Biden seems to be focused intently on, he's our, he and Fauci are basically the nation's doctors on the pandemic, trying to get the economy more social, more left, if you will, all the way to this gigantic reconciliation package, which they still hope to get through this summer. So he's moving the party a bit to the left, much more ambitious, I think, than Obama was. So he's keeping it focused on relief from the pandemic and reform in terms of the economy and our society. So he's very clear what he's up to. He's not getting focused. He's not distracted by the border. He's not distracted by North Korea or the Middle East or even Putin. I think he's trying to keep the focus domestically on our urgent need to fight the pandemic and his political and personal need to have an aggressive presidency. So I think that's, I give Ron Klain credit for that. I, I think uh, the press secretary has done a great job. Yeah. Has not messed up at all, which is an extraordinary performance. Yeah. Well, and him too, right? I mean, I, I, you mentioned the fact that, you know, we think of Joe Biden as a gaffe machine. That was his reputation. Yeah. He, he actually called himself that, right? And that has, uh, has a flip side that was positive for him. It's a reflection of authenticity and people like that about Biden. And it was priced into the stock so he could make a lot of mistakes and people would be like, oh, it's just Joe Biden. But he's been really disciplined. And I think a lot of people are surprised at how disciplined he's been. I agree with you about Ron, who I think, you know, it's very early, but I don't think there's been a more qualified chief of staff, in, certainly in my professional lifetime and maybe, you know, in anybody's lifetime. Yeah. And so all that's worked. But I do I want to come back to the COVID of it, right? Because it is the case that Biden staked a lot on being able to beat the pandemic, right? And I just wonder whether you think it's dangerous to have so much of your political fortune riding on a thing that is not really within your control. Now, nothing's really within your control and presidencies are, have less control than people ascribe to them. But the reality is like, this is a mysterious thing. And you hear Fauci talking about not just that the Delta variant's bad, but there may be a worse one coming. And you know, there's reports now about the Lambda variant in, down in Peru that's just trampling over vaccinated people. I mean, there was a story in Reuters that freaked people out about the fact it's not just that there might be a worse variant coming, but it's already happening in South America and on its way here. So I just wonder whether you think it's dangerous for a president to say, this is what my presidency is going to be graded on. And the thing that you're trying to, that you've staked so much on is a thing that people don't really understand. You know, we've never seen anything like this before and it's unpredictable and no one can really predict with confidence what's going to happen going forward. That seems like a pretty big bet to make on a thing where a lot of the key forces are not within your control. I think I know what you're working toward here is the parallel with Jimmy Carter and the hostages, where he put all his presidency on the success of getting those 50 people back safely. Right. And if they didn't get back safely, he lost. Yeah. And he did lose. Yeah. So, but I also think 
that if he hadn't done that, if he hadn't put the priority on, well, it worked for the first six months. The problem he has is the one that Churchill warned us about years ago, which is never be a politician who predicts success only to face failure. Right. Because once you say you're going to do something, you better damn well do it. Yeah. And, and the problem with Biden is he's sort of got to identify with the euphoria of the last month that we've gotten past this. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of cowboy, as you and I know very well, this is country is very much a cowboy country. Yeah, there's some people in New York who live in apartments and rely on the park across the street. And yes, they don't have cars in some cases, and they rely on the super to get the temperature up or down. They bang on the pipes. They are a dependent <laughs> culture. But most Americans do not live in the big cities like that. They're very cowboy. Yeah. They want their own car, yeah. their own family, their own way of living, their own house, a separated house. Yeah. They want to be able to do what they want to do, go to what church they want to, whatever gun they want to own. They want to go to a doctor who's like from their parish, basically. That's how people are. Yeah. You know, that's cowboy America. And they're probably saying, you're telling me, Mr. President, to put my mask back on? You telling me? You're like Robert De Niro. You're talking to me? And, and I think that's a problem. I think that's a political problem. It's not anybody's fault. But it's coming down on by next couple months. Well, yes. And, you know, I mentioned, right, so in that sound, he takes a shot at Florida. You know, we did yeah. Ron DeSantis. Well, why? Because he thinks he's running against the guy next sure, time. Sure, of course. But here comes Ron DeSantis replying. I want to listen to the sound and then talk about what's so striking about it is that this is a guy where COVID's on fire in his state. It's on fire, right? And this is not a guy, this is what you're about to hear, is a guy who's cowering in the corner who thinks like, oh shit, my, my state's on fire with COVID. I'm going down in flames. This is a guy who's making an aggressive case against Joe Biden on an issue where more people are getting infected with COVID than have there been in many months. I mean, Florida, in some sense, is a basket case. That's why Biden's hitting it. But here's Ron DeSantis saying, no, 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 we're doing this the right way. Listen to Ron DeSantis here. Play the sound. I just want to say uh, something uh, quickly. Um, you know, uh, Joe Biden has taken to himself to try to single out Florida um, over COVID. Uh, this is a guy who ran for president saying he was going to, quote, shut down the virus. And what has he done? He's imported more virus from around the world by having a wide open southern border. And so he's not shutting down the virus. He's helping to facilitate it in our country. And he goes on and says, what's Joe Biden's solution? Joe Biden says he wants all of our kindergartners to be wearing masks and you're not going to tell us what to do. He did exactly the same thing that you just said. You were all over it in a preemptive way. He's basically like, we are a freedom loving country. We are not going to have a big government solution here. I'm going to let the families of Florida decide what they want to do. And it's a very, I'm not praising it substantively, but I'm stunned by how assertive and aggressive this governor is when you know, in a lot of in, in other in a rational world, you'd be like, yeah, I know my state's kind of like in trouble. Like, you know, like, but excuse me, sir, I have to go and take care of my of my people who are in the hospital. That's not Ron DeSantis right now. And that seems like what the character of the Republican, you can already see Republicans going, no, COVID's not a losing issue for us. It's a winning issue for us. Yeah. And I think it's the uh, shoot the moon mentality of DeSantis, which is, uh, OK, everybody else is discarding their their, their, their spades or whatever. I'm going to get I'm going to gather them up. You know, I'm going to go the other direction because that's what's open to me. And they're all going to deal with it from a protective way, a security way, a health way. I'm going to be the cowboy. I'm going to say we don't need all these masks and stuff. And because that was open to him. But also the cheap card of going after Hispanics, you know, and blaming it on Hispanics and the old race card. Right. Playing that one right out there. Calling the president Joe. Excuse me. Yeah. Who is this guy? Yeah. You know, Joe. 
like he's no better. He's not quite my equal, in fact. He treats the president as somebody from a lower peg than him. It's all there. It's being a wise ass. It's all about being worse than Trump and also getting the media to attack him. That's what I've heard is the real strategy of uh, the Senate. Get the media to attack because every time the media attacks him, your enemy is my enemy. It's it's classic Trump. You don't like liberals. You don't like rich people that went to Harvard. You don't like Ivy Leaguers. You don't want smart asses. I don't like him either. In fact, I don't like him more than you don't like him. (laughs) So love me. That's what the Sanders is doing. He's got the play card there. It's the Trump card. You know, yes, 100%. He's he's the (laughs) non-imbecilic, non-completely deranged Trump. You know, he's Trump on steroids in one respect, but with a little bit more IQ and a little bit more self-control. So here's another thing that's going on with Biden. By the way, I think he wants Nikki Haley to be his running mate. I think they're already shopping. I mean, Nikki Haley's the perfect neocon, if you will, hawkish, non-Trumpian, not quite Trumpian, and a woman of you know yeah, color, you could argue, sure. of a different background, yeah. Indian. But um, I can see this thing sizing up three years ahead of time. But you know, 100%. Well, the only wild card, of course, is Trump himself, and we'll get to that. But, but let's just let me talk about another Biden-related thing, right? So, you know, this week, the Senate's doing the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And I was on with Lawrence the other night. And Lawrence, of course, with his Senate background, was marveling at what was going on. It was like, they're legislating. Look at this. You know, they're offering amendments. They're out there, you know, Schumer and McConnell not working together. But, you know, they had set the rule and the things moving forward. And there could be could get 70 votes, could get 80 votes. You know, something you haven't seen in the Senate in a really long time. And, you know, to my mind, it is another testament to the thing you were just talking about, which is a presidency is not just about who the president is, about the team. And the Biden people have extraordinary high degree of experience. I have never seen, literally never seen, the degree of coordination that is so effective between a White House, the majority leader, and the speaker. They have been on the same page, no breaks, lockstep. It's like Republican almost, the way that they have been running this legislative strategy. So I ask you, you know, you're an old Capitol Hill hand and obviously, you know, saw things from Tip O'Neill's office and, and from other every other possible perspective. Are you, as you watch this thing happen, the bipartisanship of it, the fact of us seemingly, at least for the moment, just in this, maybe in this, maybe the last time it'll happen in these four years, but a functional kind of like the old fashioned Senate. I just wonder, you know, if you're watching this, are you as kind of not in awe of it, but I'm kind of surprised by it as some of us are? Well, I give, you, I give them chops for everything you say, but th- that's just the first gate here. I've always said that people think Mitch McConnell is Elmer Fudd. I think he's Bugs Bunny. He gets away with everything. He always gets away with it. We run, the Democrats run a nice woman candidate against him every six years. He smashes through and wins again. He just, and he chuckles with that weird mirth of his, every, just like Bugs Bunny. Here's the problem. This is not a house of cards, but it is a very tricky structure to get these two bills through. The bipartisan bill and the reconciliation bill, which is 3.1 trillion over 10 years. Nancy Pelosi has made a couple of statements, whether she holds to them or not, she's made them. One is, I'm not going to take up the bipartisan bill at all in the House of Representatives right. until the Senate passes, passes the reconciliation bill. Well, if they don't pass the reconciliation bill because they don't have Manchin and Cinema, the two Democrats they need, then nothing will get done. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If they do pass the Senate, and she says, another thing she said is, I'm not sending the bipartisan bill to the president for his signature, even if passed by both houses, which she says isn't going to happen unless the Senate passes the reconciliation bill first. If you go to all the various options and ways this thing could work its way out, there are a number of ways it could work its way out that nothing gets done. Yes. 
And Mitch McConnell still gets credit for having passed the Senate with 60 plus votes. So Mitch could say, hey, I got together with Mr. Schumer and and the president. We got a bill through here. And and those crazy Democrats couldn't agree with the squad. Yeah. And they couldn't agree with Manchin. They couldn't agree with Sinema. Yep. And I don't know how many people I'll say this about Nancy. I think she's been a fantastic speaker. But what she did, she's apparently getting this counsel in the room with her from the squad and the others, a big chunk of them that can deny her her 218 votes for any of this stuff, that if they don't have the big win, they're not going to have any win. Right. There ain't going to be no middle of the road solution here. Right. That's not what the squad wants. Totally. So this is just politics. I'm not knocking anybody. I know from big city districts that are poor and, and minority in many ways, they have their constituency, which is just as legitimate as Westchester or anywhere else. Yeah. But it is going to be a challenge to get all these ducks in a row. And I still think it could all fail. Right. Or it could all win. As you say, if it all wins, then this is the great legislative achievement of our time in many ways. So, yeah, Chris, uh, I think this is a good place for us to take a break because I want to talk some more about the squad and especially AOC, the captain of the squad. After we take this break, she's a super interesting figure in our politics and represents a lot of super interesting forces. Uh, So, like I said, let's play some ads and we'll come back after this break with Chris Matthews here on Hell and High Water. Before the break, we were discussing the squad. Let's focus on the one who we mentioned, the member, the leader, she herself, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, talking just a couple weeks ago on CNN State of the Union with Jake Tapper. AOC said something that reflected exactly the reality that you've been talking about, Chris, not wanting any middle-of-the-road solutions, those people on the progressive part of the party. And I'm sure it's sent a chill down the spine of some of the more moderate or mainstream members of the Democratic Party. So let's play this clip of AOC talking about her and the left's all or nothing approach to infrastructure. If there is not a reconciliation bill in the House, and if the Senate does not pass the reconciliation bill, we will uphold our end of the bargain and not pass the bipartisan bill until we get all of these investments in. And I want to be clear that the investments in the bipartisan bill are not all, you know, candy land. Bipartisan doesn't always mean that that it's in the interest of the public good, frankly. Sometimes there's a lot of corporate lobbyist giveaways in some of these bills. So there she is, you know, as you say, Chris, this is the tension going forward. They get this bipartisan bill out of the Senate and then you've got the big human infrastructure, much larger bill. I know. What happens with all of that? You've got to deal with the Joe Manchins of the world to get that out of the Senate. There's, again, I agree with you. I wouldn't say House of Cards, but this is going to be a a high degree of difficulty to try to build either one of these planes to build it and land it, get it up in the air, get it down on the ground was going to be hard to do it simultaneously. was always like degree of difficulty off the charts. Right. So I think you're right. Still a lot of, a lot of time we're going to, this fall is going to be quite a thing to watch, but I want to ask you just to start because you made the point. The women from the squad are obviously, you know, they're in some ways the face of the democratic party in some ways, not necessarily representative of what the mainstream of the Democratic Party is, but they are stars, right? Yes, they are. I want to get your read on AOC. Is she, in your mind, you know, I saw her when she went out and did surrogate events for Bernie Sanders in 2020. 
I said, I looked at her and said, that woman's going to be running for president in, in, if not in four years, she can be running in eight years and she's going to be a force to be reckoned with. She has incredible charisma and an incredible following. It's not, again, I don't think it's where the mainstream Democratic Party is much more older and more conservative than people like to think. And that's why we have Joe Biden as president. But AOC is lightning in a bottle. And as that sound shows, is not at all averse to flexing her muscles and trying to assert her. She's not like, I'm, I'm just a young congresswoman from New York. She's like, I want to be a national leader and I'm going to flex my muscles and show you that I could do it. Well, you know, you've covered politics as long as I have. In fact, you've been wilder in your past than I've ever been. You're much more, much more outside the box thinker. But politics is about people and it's about the unfairness of life. Some people have the spark of personality. It's not just appearance necessarily. That's part of it. Right. It's this kind of, wow, what are they going to, Howard Stern's got it. What's this guy going to say next? What, what is going on here? It's magic. I mean, you look at the histories of Johnny Carson. I watched that guy for 30 years and I thought I was his friend. I don't think he was that nice a guy from what I heard, but he was nice to me. Yeah. You know, his company, I didn't have any social life some years and I'd be, I had my cheese and crackers and my Coke and there was Johnny Carson, you know, AOC is a star. I watched her campaign ad for Andy Markey, my friend up in Massachusetts against Joe Kennedy, the sunrise movement and her, it's not about gender, but of course it's everything's it can be both ways. It's about sparkle. And can you get on television and light up and showtime? Can you do it? Now Palin could do that briefly. I was honest about that. I mean, she had that spark of, Wow, what's going on here? You know, Churchill once said he was a, we're all worms, but I'm a glow worm. You know, some people are glow worms. You know, Colin Powell has never had a bad picture taken of him. He just always looks like he commands. Yes. Dan Quayle never looked like he was, he's a handsome guy, but he was never in command. Some people have the ability to drag that camera into their soul and project back at the audience, and you go, wow. And she's got it. I saw what she did for Ed Markey. And he, I, I've talked to him about it. It's just spectacular. And when she, everybody wants her on television because right. she's alive. Yeah. She's actually, some of these other guys sound like they're repeating something they've said one million times before. And they put you to sleep. I don't know if she's young enough or old enough, or whatever. I don't think she'll run for president for a while, but I hear all kinds of rumors. Governor, you know, the fanciful idea of taking on Chuck Schumer, I don't think she'll do that. My God, she, when she campaigns for people, you want her there. If you're a, if you're a, a young challenger up to an establishment, Paul, who do you want at the dinner that night? Who do you want on the tube that night at six o'clock? You want her. So I, I think she's handled herself pretty darn well. And I think she's done some inside communication with Pelosi that we don't know about, which is just as effective. Right. I think that I've seen this happen with Tip and Eddie Markey right. and Ron Dellums. These speakers have always had a Democratic speaker. We always have to deal with the left. Right. And again, what happens if this whole thing comes down and it's her call? Right. The, things will look different. Right. They just will. So she has to push it, push it, push it, push it, get everything she can, and then throw in the towel and say, I got my half loaf. When the squad, the women from the squad are elected in 2018, Pelosi was incredibly dismissive about them. She was always throwing elbows. She was always trying to kind of keep them in their place. And now... It's changed to your point. I think, you know, Pelosi recognizes the moment and that there's a chance to get this stuff done. You really are talking about, you know, when Biden did the big speech about his domestic priorities, you were like, this is the most liberal, progressive set of economic and other policies anybody's put forward since LBJ. And if they all get enacted, I mean, you're talking about many trillions of dollars there. It's FDR scale stuff. Right. And so I think Pelosi was like, well, if this is going to be very hard to do, her eyes are on the prize about how there would be a great way for her to go out, having helped 
You know, she's getting ready to retire. Can she bring this thing home for Biden? Can she bring this thing home for her own legacy? Yeah. And also, uh, you're selling it the way they want to sell it to the uh, progressive left, too. Yes. They could have sold this about meat and potatoes and say, we're out for fixing bridges and showing pictures. That's my story. Yes. I once gave Tip a list of all the bridges below safety code in the Republican leaders' district. Yes. Just, right. you know, which I got from the chief engineer. They don't work. They don't care about pork barrel. They're not selling right. this pork barrel. They're selling it as ideological. Let's face right. it. Why do they say $3.1 trillion, even though it's over 10 years, when they could say $300 billion and make it sound much better? Yep. Because they want it to sound transformative. Yep. Bernie wants to hear that. Yep. Bernie Sanders. Yep. He wants to hear left, left, left. There is this question and there's this this struggle that's going on in, in our midst, right? Which is, what is the Democratic Party and to define its future? And- I think you have, if you go back to that midterm in 2018, the squad got all the attention, but the vast majority of those freshmen who got elected in that big wave class were Mikey Sherrill's and Abigail Spanberger's. They were much more moderate from swing districts, right? We all said, you know, in the media, people said progressives could take it over the party, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, and then, you know, Joe Biden, moderate old Joe Biden, there playing to a different Democratic Party, which was the, the party is older, the party is more towards the middle. And certainly that African-Americans, older African-Americans are not woke. That was the premise of Joe Biden. He wins the nomination. How did when he know that? He, How did he know well, that? That the black, <laughs> the base of the Democratic Party, the most reliable, true blue yeah. Democrats are not lefties. Correct. And that older, especially older African-Americans are further to the right on race issues than liberal whites. It's like one of these things we've learned now watching Biden's success. And I think they, you know, People like Mike Donilon were very focused on this throughout, and they kept saying over and over again, the Democratic Party is not what you see on Twitter. It's not. Yeah. Look at this data. Pay attention. So Biden gets the nomination. Biden wins the presidency. He doesn't win it. We now look at all the data from 2020. How did he win it? He won it with older voters. He won it with married voters, married men, not because of the coalition of the ascendant. You look at actually how he won these states. So now this fight is happening in our midst, Chris. And you know we had this primary, Democratic primary in Ohio between Nina, Nina Turner and Chantel Brown. And Nina Turner, you know, Bernie Sanders and and all of the Sunrise people, everybody's out there. Bernie, you know, go get Nina Turner's going to win this nomination. This is a kind of a test case for a lot of people. You know, she had Bernie Sanders. She had AOC. She had Keith Ellison. She had Cornell West, all those people on the Chantel Brown side, Hillary Clinton, Jim Clyburn, you know, the much more kind of mainstream establishment black leaders in the Congressional Black Caucus. And not only does Chantel Brown win, she wins, you know, in a trot. She wins by six points. Right. Yeah. So what does that tell us? There's this story that says the headline, and this is what I'll leave you with as a frame for this. The headline says, in a string of wins, Biden Democrats see a reality check for the left. So I ask you, having been a student of the Democratic Party for 40 years, more? At least. Where where, where are we now and where are we going? That's who I thought I was for all those years on television. Yes. Because I was against the war in Iraq. I was against voter suppression. But a lot of the other social issues I could negotiate. And I also think that the South Carolina primary, in fact, in the immediate re- aftermath of Nevada last year, the caucuses, yeah. when everybody saw Bernie basically three straight and, it, and left the only one contending with him was Biden in the high teens, 19 or something, then I think somebody, not just Buttigieg and not just Amy Klobuchar and, and Bloomberg, they all decided, hey, well, along with the voters, we got to get serious about picking someone to be Trump here and not just have fun and games like we had in 72. This is not fun and games time. Right. We have a chance to beat Trump, but also a chance to lose to him again. Yes. That's how it looked last March. It did. And I think Jim Clyburn in cahoots with Nancy Pelosi 
decided we got to get out there to Ohio and head off this thing. We got to head off the idea that we're the defund the police party. Yep. We absolutely have to say the leadership of this party is for black lives. 100 percent, 1000 percent. But we are not, in no damn way are we forgetting we're the police, because when you dial 911, you inevitably don't live in Beverly Hills. You live in a tough neighborhood and you want that cop to show up strong, courageous and at your service. You do not want that cop to be wimpy or hesitant or afraid of what it's going to be on his body camera. You want that guy to be there to help you and save your life. So the idea of defunding the police means, I'm sorry, we've defunded the police. There is no more 911 <laughs> number. Nobody wants that on the phone. Yeah. So I think that I think the common sense, when I heard that Clyburn was going out there, I said, this is to protect the status, the credibility, and the moderation, and the, and the common sense of the leadership of the Democratic Party. I think that was the fire brigade. 100%. I think that's exactly right. And it's, a, it's just a replay again you know, of what we saw. It's a recapitulation of what you saw in that moment. I mean, I remember it. You you, you were on television, and I, I you said a couple things about Bernie Sanders that were controversial at that moment right after the Nevada caucuses. And then, you know, Bernie Sanders went and we, we started talking about Castro, which was not to his best. Actually, right I said the- something about a collapse to the moderate forces and compared that to the collapse of the French army. I never mentioned Bernie. I never thought of Bernie, but that's how they played it on the, on the media. Wow. Yes. Yes, that's it's how it's, I, it's certainly how the Bernie people heard it. Let's put it. No, that that's way. the way they wanted to hear it. Whatever the hell. Yes. Yes. No, no, no I was, I'm not. I just think I think you were not. I think you're not wrong. I think you were. I, I think you, you captured that moment, I think, actually accurately. And it was part of the dynamic of what I think for a lot of people in the Democratic Party. It was one of the things that was a clarifying thing for a lot of Democrats who realized what was at stake, I think, at that no, moment. I and, I'm sitting and, here out there on the strip. Yeah. And it's mid-afternoon, Nevada time. And I don't hear any results coming in except Bernie's. At that point, after we hadn't heard any numbers, it looked like a complete wipeout. Right. And I go, what happened to the moderate forces of the Democratic Party? Yep. And uh, the union people, in fact, some of them. And I go, what is going on here? And I had just read that piece in the, the, the Splendid Nevile about Churchill getting that phone call. There is no French army left. And they go, what? Right. <laughs> and I know I should have been careful and sensitive, but that's what I was thinking about. I've never seen anything like it. You know, I'll tell you, Chris, I, I got to say for Joe Biden to go from where he was after the fourth place finish in Iowa, the fifth place finish in New Hampshire, the very distant second place in Nevada, although they now point to that as saying if he hadn't, even though it was distant, just having that number two kept Biden alive. Yeah, you're right. That's very subtle. I mean, their their view was even though he finished, you know, lost by a healthy double digit margin, that if he had finished third, it would have been very hard for him to to get. Clyburn probably wouldn't have endorsed him in South Carolina because he would have looked too dead. And you think away, it turned around in that period from the the giant victory in South Carolina and then obviously what happened in the Super Tuesday period where the entire party, the entire non-left part of the party piled in behind him. I just never seen anything like that. I've never seen someone's political fortunes change from dead to nominee in the span of 72 hours. Me too. And I, and I, what I had pushing me watching the Nevada thing and everything before it, I mean, Biden came up to me in, in New Hampshire and said to me, you say I can't win. Well, after Iowa heading into New Hampshire, it looked like he couldn't win. I'm sorry. Right. That's my job. And, yeah. uh, but I kept thinking back to 72. I'm an aide to the Democratic National Committee down in Miami. And at 2.30 in the morning, they nominated George McGovern. They weren't serious about beating Nixon. They just weren't serious. Right. 
I ask you one last thing before we take a break to play some ads here, but I'll ask you one last news of day thing, which is the Andrew Cuomo news, right? I'm just going to toss it out there. I mean, look, I mean, the writing is obviously on the wall and not just on the wall, but in big, huge block letters in red, you know, that no one wants him in the Democratic establishment, the Democratic Party, elected office holders. I'm not talking about voters. There are some voters who want to stick with him, but most Democrats are praying for him to resign. And if he won't resign, they're ready to impeach him. I just want to hear you. You know, we both have watched Andrew Cuomo for a long time, you know, from his time as, as HUD secretary. But you, I'm sure, knew his dad. Yeah, I loved his dad. I wrote a few things about his dad. You know, he is a complicated character. And again, talk about how are the mighty fall on a guy who in March, April of, of 2020, people were like, this is the model of what we need to fight COVID. He was great at that. He was a daily hero. He was the, the counterpoint to Donald Trump every day talking about the virus on television. And now he is persona non grata in the Democratic Party. What, what do you make of Andrew Cuomo? Well, what hit me is what hit you is the evidence was compelling, the consistency of it, the uh, facts base of it, the, the factual, not, not, not the feelings of people or their sense of being violated and certainly talked down to, diminished as professionals, but the factual testimony was presented really hard. And I think that's what his interpretation afterwards didn't do much to dislodge. It was yeah. factual and it wasn't subject to, she misheard me or... I think the facts were pretty clear and they may be criminal. I mean, we have to see what the uh, district attorney in Albany does with a case on the criminal side. We don't know what's going to, I'm not going to prejudge that, but what I can prejudge is what you said a minute ago. I have never seen whole blocks of governors, regional governors taking the proactive step of telling the guy to quit. I mean, what business is a Maryland? I mean, it's all, all the regional governors, they actually got together and it's not like they did it because it's going to hurt them. I don't think huh. a bad backwash from this is going to hurt a Democrat in Pennsylvania or somewhere else in or Arizona. Even Jersey, or even Jersey, nowhere. No, I don't just, think so. I and think, no one even asked them the question. It was just like, I think they thought, I don't want to judge, be too cute or romantic about this, but I think they did it because they think it's the right thing to say. Yeah. This sounded like Donald Trump's behavior pattern when all we know about him is what he says. This guy yeah. is accused of doing it, this violation of people. And uh, I think you have to respect professionals in the office. They come to work there and they come there to do as well as they can as anybody else, a male or female. They want to do what good work and to treat them as something as, as anything but professionals is bad behavior personally. I mean, it just is. And then you decide whether it's yeah. a civil case or a criminal case or whatever, but he was in the wrong. And uh, I don't think this reinterpretation about, you know, this is the way we kiss and the forehead and all that. If that was what it was, nobody would have really complained. If what he described as happening, even the facts, some people might have complained. Yeah. But nobody would have thought it was evil. You know, it's just it's not true what he's saying. It just doesn't. It can't be. It's too much evidence to the contrary. And I think I really doubt that the question is only does he. I mean, God, God knows we both have seen politicians who, even though it's obvious that it's in their best interest to go. They, for whatever reason, decided to take their heels in and, and Clarence Thomas is still Thomas there. Thomas is still there. Yes, that's exactly right. I'm sure if you're a, in, this, in the political soul of a tough guy, and we know he's a tough guy, Andrew yeah. is thinking, well, this guy hung in there and Al Franken didn't. Yeah. Who was the smart one? You know, and he's thinking, well, maybe the guy that hung in there, yeah. you know, want to take the abuse for a while. But this time it's almost like Nixonian. I mean, the fact that remember Nixon did the head count in the Senate and he found that he yeah. George Wallace was working against him. 
because Ted Kennedy had called him and he wasn't going to get that one third plus one of the Senate. He wasn't going to survive. Nixon wasn't going to survive and he knew he wasn't going to survive. And so he left the building. And with Nixon leaving the building, that's about as good a place as any for us to take another break because it takes us back into history. And we want to get to your book and your history and the giant epic sweep of it, your life and your career and how it intersected with you know, the politics of our time. All of that is in the book, not just in the book, but the subject of the book, the latest book, the latest best-selling Chris Matthews tome, This Country, My Life in Politics and History. If you haven't bought that book already, you're a fool. Got to go out, hit that button, hit that buy button on amazon.com right now. We're going to talk about it all after this break here on Hell and High Water with my friend, Chris Matthews. And we're back with Chris Matthews to talk about his life and times and career and his latest book, This Country, My Life in Politics and History. In your memoir, Chris, uh, you write about an interview that you did with Bill Clinton in California when he was running for president. This was in the spring of 1992. And I want to play a little bit of that interview. Went, went and found the audio of it because it sounded interesting in your description of the book. And it turns out, indeed, when you hear Bill Clinton's voice, it turns out to be even better than it reads on the page. Uh, so let's listen to that, a little bit of that interview, and then go on a glorious march down memory lane with you, this man, a big figure in our recent politics and a big figure in your career, Chris Matthews. So let's hear it. Governor Clinton. One of the dirty little secrets of American journalism is uh, as hard as journalists try to get it right, the people who are in this story know more about it. How the journalists who have covered your campaign the last six months not quite got Bill Clinton right? (laughs) We only have an hour? (laughs) I think people often reading these stories would have the impression that I sort of dropped into American politics from out of space in a suit running for president, which is something I had somehow calculated for 20 years, if you read these stories. Grew up around people who, for reasons of race or income, didn't have the same chances that I wound up having. And I always thought that everybody ought to have a shot to live up to their potential. I care deeply about it. There has been a a constancy and a commitment and a passion to my life that has very little to do with running for a particular job or or turning politics into a career. And I don't think that's come out. The other thing I think is just purely generational, uh, that's something you can identify with. I think that I grew up when, you know, Eisenhower was my president and then I got excited about Kennedy and politics was something noble and good. And it, it was, it wasn't something sort of slimy that interest groups did and lobbyists manipulated and that dragged people down and it was seamy and had a dark underbelly. It was something that that you could give yourself to because it was a good thing to do. I love that quote because, you know, Bill Clinton had so much, there's so much dark side, so much dark side to him, but also so much light. And, you know, you think back to 92, you did that interview on May 29th in San Francisco. As I said, you wrote about it in the book. You said that to his credit, he answered every question you threw at him. And that you know, is the Bill Clinton that that was why he was a phenomenon. That Bill Clinton, the idealistic Bill Clinton, the altruistic Bill Clinton, the Clinton who talked about public service in that way. You know, it's, it's so much has happened now, Chris, that we it's hard to remember why Bill Clinton was the phenomenon that he was when he ran in 92. In a lot, in a lot of ways, as a broadcaster, he was the kind of beginning of your broadcast career. But the coverage of him was really like that was a central defining presidency for you that sent you off. 
I think Bill Clinton had youth and he had spontaneity and connection with young people in the way that George Herbert Walker Bush was out of it. He was checking his watch. He didn't seem to know what, a, what goes on at a supermarket every day. Clinton was the first boomer president. And I think he had that confidence and, and romance. I mean, he had been through the draft. He, he knew what politics was about. I mean, you can get drafted and sent to war and be killed. These are decisions made by the president of the United States. He knew the power. And also he'd seen the moon rocket go up there. And he'd listened like the rest of us to people on the moon. He had seen the Peace Corps come into being. He saw the Cuban Missile Crisis and how a young president could get us through it and save the planet. I mean, these were realities of dramatic proportion. And he knew what the presidency could be. In that sound, he says, you know, that I grew up when Eisenhower was my president. Well, so did Chris Matthews. And, and then it says, I got excited about Kennedy. And, you know, you obviously have written about Kennedy. You've been a student of the Kennedys, not just Jack, but Bobby too. And then I read this book, this fantastic book, This Country by, by Chris Matthews. And I found out that, that back at the time, I had no idea this was true, that back at the time that, that Chris Matthews was a Nixon supporter and like Hillary Clinton was a, a Goldwater Republican in real time. There are many things that people who read this book will learn about Chris Matthews that they did not know. I thought I knew a lot about you. I learned a ton reading the book in addition to it being just a great read. That was one of those things. Explain that. Well, you know, I grew up in a Republican family. We call it cloth coat Republican family, not a mink coat family, <laughs> uh, to use Nixon's term. My dad believed in self-reliance, looking out for yourself, providing for your family, paying your bills, paying your taxes, joining the Knights of Columbus, bowling on Friday night, golf on Saturday. I mean... He was a very regular guy, and he uh, took everything responsible. Everything that had to do with his life, it was a responsibility for him. He wouldn't buy a Coke on the way home from work. He'd buy a Philadelphia Bulletin for five cents. But he never spent, they never, we never had steaks growing up. My parents never went to nightclubs. They took all the money my dad made and spent it on our education. And we lived well, you know, braces, piano lessons, place the shore eventually down the shore, as we say in Philly, <laughs> down the shore. But it was all invested in us. And so I, that looked pretty good to me as a value system. And I, I guess I liked Nixon because he was the underdog. And Kennedy was the good-looking movie star, all the money, all the charm, all the self-confidence. If he went into a dance floor at some wealthy person's house, he'd know just how to dance. He'd be absolutely self-confident with the women. All those advantages in life that I just looked at, it was, I don't understand anybody that successful in life. Nixon was the guy who's the first one in the family to wear a suit. He went to law school. He worked his way up. He wasn't the coolest guy in the world. He's an average looking guy. I said, this is the guy I'm rooting for. He's like my dad. Yeah. Goldwater, on the other hand, my Goldwater, I know why Hillary was for him. Libertarianism. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, leave us alone, big government. Leave us alone. Like, why do we have to wear helmets when we ride our motorbikes? You know? Yeah. Get off our back. <laughs> I think that was a lot of Goldwater. Basically, the whole story of, you know, growing up in the way you just described, cloth coat Republican, uh, suburbs of Philadelphia, go to Holy Cross, you know, go through this, this period in the early 60s. And I know this much I knew that the Peace Corps, which you went off to do after college in Africa, was a transformative experience for you. And I guess... I wonder whether it was that, I mean, if you had to explain how you went from being a Goldwater Republican as a young, as a very young man, in the evolution of your politics, was the Peace Corps the first thing that started that transformation towards becoming, you know, a Democrat? Or was there some other factor? Look, 
to Dallas. You know, people talk about 9-11 having changed their life. I don't think so. I mean, obviously, it was a tragedy for those involved. But the loss of a president in the very center of our lives, the guy you and I would be talking about if we were doing this back in 63, we'd be talking about Jack Kennedy all the time. Yeah. He was a magnetic figure. Yeah. And the guy who was at the center of our absolute conversation, I always said that was the guy I most wanted to meet in politics. I found him intriguing, interesting, whatever. And to have him just blown away at one o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday afternoon, you go to lunch at Holy Cross, you come back from lunch and he's dead. Yeah. He's gone. I spent the whole afternoon watching Cronkite and watching the replays of everything all that night. I'm telling you, that changed my life. It just did. Especially when you're on the other side politically, you had some guilt involved with this. You go, wait a minute. To what extent was I responsible? And you're not, but that's the way you feel. And then, of course, Gene McCarthy came along. He was my next hero. Yeah. But no doubt, when you ask me about my life, I'd like to give it this answer. Chris Matthews went to Africa in the Peace Corps. He was out there in the middle of nowhere in Swaziland. He was on a motorbike, a 120 Suzuki, and he would drive around where everybody looked different from him. He looked different from everybody else. And yet the people he worked with on the hottest day in the world would say, do you want a cold drink? Even if they didn't have a fridge, they'd get me a Coke. They were the nicest people in the world to me. These guys were men in their 40s and 50s. They treated me like a son, some of them. Yeah, I think that had a big impact on my life. Just because, to what, to some of it, some, it was racial, but it was also about the other, being out there and realizing that's a human being just like you, incredibly like you. As different as the language, it was Zulu. As different it was in terms of geography or wealth, they had nothing except 20 or 30 cattle and some maize that saved from the harvest. I just never figured out how they managed to squeeze through. And yet, when you talk to them about their lives, they had pride, very nationalistic like we are. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't mess with them. You couldn't. I remember that thing in the book where I said to a friend of mine over there, kidding him saying I was in the CIA, and he said, never tell that joke again. <laughs> right. Because it wasn't a joke to the us. It's just, you know, of course I'm not in the CIA. But to them, right. it isn't, of course. They don't know where they are. By the way, sarcasm never looks good in print. Yes, that's right. <laughs> the sarcastic self-aggrandizing when you say, well, of course I'm the handsomest guy on the street. And people read that and like, that guy's really an asshole. But you're like, no, I was trying to say I'm, in, I'm trying to say the opposite. Um, I know, I know, I know, I know. But sarcasm doesn't translate print. And by the way, I think a lot of people just have a mute button. They don't get it. Yeah. So you come back and, and you've got this period in the 70s where you're toggling a little bit between journalism and politics. That includes, you know, some work for Ralph Nader when he started a news service. I, again, another thing I didn't know is that you had this college connection to Joe McGinnis, which I, again, I think somehow has never come up in any conversation we've ever had before. If you love to write journalism was a, was calling you at the same time politics was calling you i think you know it's a thing that's very common for people who have our enthusiasms right yeah. a lot of people you know toggled in between those two things writing about politics being in politics working as a staffer or as a strategist but then being a columnist whatever you did that par excellence right in this period yeah and i got in trouble for it i people challenged me they, they challenged my right to do it david broder came down to me like yeah. a ton of bricks yeah the dean of the washington because i dared come into Journalism. I got my job with the San Francisco Examiner, having just worked for Tip O'Neill. And they go, yeah. how can that be? But in my defense, I'd said nobody else knew who the San Francisco Examiner of Washington Bureau Chief was before I came along. It wasn't like the number one position in the country. Right. And why did Broder give a damn? But I made that job into a big job, I think. 
I want you to talk about those two big figures of that era that you work for. Jimmy Carter, you're a speechwriter for Carter, working with another famous journalist that we both know, Rick Kurtzberg from The New Yorker. Uh, and then you end up with Tip's office. I mean, I, you know, Jimmy Carter, a Democratic president, you know, was a really important figure if you think about the post-Watergate period, obviously a failed president in some sense, you know, one term. Yeah. Uh, and then Tip, you know, O'Neill, the Speaker of the House, who was really, in a lot of ways, the dominant figure in Democratic politics for a generation. So you had a front row seat to how power politics on the Democratic side worked in the 70s and 80s. I can't imagine in some ways two better places to learn how politics actually functions, something unfortunately that a lot of journalists who cover it don't really ever know because they've never been in the, well, we're in a speech for a sitting president of the United States, or they've never been in the office of the speaker in the middle of a giant negotiation with the White House or in the, a complicated passage of a bill. Talk about Carter and talk about Tip. Both of them get a lot of play in the book for good reason. You know, how do you think of those guys now and what you feel like you took away from them, from those jobs? how they helped you to understand. They brought just so much intellectual capital that you used as a broadcaster going forward and a columnist. Jimmy Carter was an outsider. I remember one time on Air Force One, I was on the plane the last couple of weeks. I promoted to that job during the end. We we're fighting for re-election. And I'm walking past the president's compartment and I see he has a binder on his desk of mugshots. It's basically pictures of people. He is memorizing the faces of the people he's going to meet at the next stop. He didn't know them. Yeah. You see, yeah. that's the outsider in Carter. And yeah. he, imagine you're president of the United States, the most important person in the world. Yeah. And your biggest worry is you're not going to remember Joe Blow's face when you meet him. And that's what Carter had to face. He had no talent or predilection for being a backslapping pile. He didn't know anybody. He got elected the president of the United States. He got nominated by saying, I never met a Democratic president. I've never been to Washington. I've never done this. I've never done, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not anybody. I'm not part of the team. But that he suffered from that. He didn't know anybody. When he got in trouble over the hostages and inflation, he had nobody to back him up. Right. The party was still with Teddy Kennedy. Right. And I think that's what Pelosi were talking about. The trick of the Democratic Party is you got to recognize it's a coalition party and you got to keep the left with the moderate left. You got to keep them together or you lose. Carter was moderate left. He had to keep the left. He couldn't do it. He wasn't that good a politician at that big level. Right. But he was very good at getting elected. You know, when I lost my race for the House in a Democratic primary in 1974, I get a letter from Carter yeah. saying, stay involved in politics, yeah. call up this guy named Hamilton Jordan yeah. and, and, and get hooked up with my team. I mean, he built his administration in many ways in the beginning with people that lost. Tip's sort of the opposite, right? I mean, Tip is a master politician, right? 50 straight elections. Yeah. I mean, you know, safe district. Yeah. But also a master legislative tactician, strategist, holding coalitions together in the House. I mean, it's not clear that there's anybody in a legislative sense, speaker, who was as masterful as Tip well, was. Pelosi's good. Pelosi's I, good. I'm, I'm, think... not, I'm, not trying to dis, I'm not trying to dis Pelosi. I'm just, you know, I mean, I think Yeah, Tip... well, let me tell you. I'll give you one vignette. You're in Tip's back office. And the doors are closed. The heat's rising because those rooms get hot. And he's smoking a big fat cigar. <laughs> yeah. So I can breathe that sort of wonderful air in the Capitol where it's all air conditioned and everything. Yeah. And then he would do something masterful. He would decide, it's usually a dispute over jurisdiction in the caucus between one committee and another. One guy said, no, this is mine. The other guy said, no, this is mine. He would attack the guy he would find for. Yeah. He would attack viciously the guy he was going to agree with. Yeah. 
and say something like, don't do it again. And then these people that have limited ability mentally would come out of the room and I'd hear them say, boy, he tore that guy a new one. I said, didn't you know he just took his side? Didn't you hear <laughs> what he just did? So these little chicks, now chick would, when I tell those to the speaker, his family, they'd deny he knew what he was doing. He didn't, of course. oh, he didn't, oh, he's not yeah. calculated. <laughs> but I knew what he was doing. Again, I, I say, I think, you know, one of the things that you brought to your career as a broadcaster was all of that intellectual capital. And I think, you know, for whatever David Broder thought, from the standpoint of giving you a kind of perspective, a kind of inside knowledge, the ability to really decode what was going on in American politics, the fact that you had worked in the legislative branch, in the executive branch, that you run for Congress, you've done all that stuff. It just puts you in a different place as a cable host when you eventually got to host Hardball. Another thing I did not know, I guess I, I sort of must, if I had really thought about it, I would have known. I didn't realize how central Roger Ailes was when he was running CNBC yeah. to the creation of the show. That's a little another nugget. Well, I met him. John, as you read, I, I was in Los Angeles at Beverly Hills having dinner yeah. with Joe McGinnis, one of my heroes. And he was working on his book on Ted Kennedy. Mm. And afterwards, he said, you want to join me on having drinks with a guy you'll really like? And then he, I said, who? He said, Roger Ailes. He said, he's the enemy. He's the demon. Yeah. He's the bad guy. He's the guy that Nixon, Reagan, all this stuff. And I met with Roger. We hit it off. We talked about a fast-paced TV show I wanted to do someday based upon sort of that was the week that was, but only like a time capsule, only really good sports, a new movie, a new book, politics, only really, really good stuff getting in that half hour. And I'd run it fast. Yeah. So that was the idea. Then he got head of CNBC and America's Talking. He started that. And I called him up. I said, what about that show, Roger? And he came through. Then the monstrous behavior, he engaged in with women. All I can tell you is, I think in most of those cases, men don't talk about it. Right. I don't think they talk about it with other men. Right. Because it was awful. So much about Roger Ailes, incredibly awful, but nothing worse than what we eventually learned about the way he treated women in private over the course of his time at Fox News. And I think in the end, a lot of people, even at Fox News, happy to see his backside when he uh, was finally forced out of his job there. But, you know, among the many revelations in this book, not exactly revelations, but will be news to a lot of people that Roger Ailes had a, had a hand in creating Hardball. A lot of people, I think, have forgotten that the show was on CNBC before it eventually made its way to MSNBC, where it became a mainstay for 20 years on every weeknight. Part of why the show was so popular was that Chris Matthews uh, had seen so much in his career. You know, a, a lifelong Democrat uh, with the exception of a little childhood flirtation with Republicanism, but someone who in his adult life had been wedded to the Democratic Party, had seen it rise, had seen it fall, saw it struggle during the Reagan era, losing three presidential elections in a row. And then Bill Clinton comes along and redefines what it means to be a Democrat, wins the White House for two terms. And then, of course, George W. Bush comes in, a dynastic figure uh, in American politics, comes in and, and wins another two terms, Matthews, a fierce critic of George Bush, mainly over the Iraq war. And then we get Barack Obama for two terms. An incredible run, those three presidents, all uh, in their different ways, very extraordinarily talented politicians. And then the spell of two-term presidents is broken. And a lot of other things are broken too uh, when Donald Trump arrives on the scene. And there is just so much to talk about Trump and his the ramifications of Trump for the Republican Party, for the country, maybe for the future of democracy itself. Too much to talk about with Chris Matthews in any remaining reasonable time on in one single episode. So we are going to call this episode right now and and say that this is a good place not just to take a break, but to end what is part one of the epic, sweeping, hopefully riveting and captivating two-part episode of 
Helen Highwater with Chris Matthews. We will conclude part one. You can all take a breather, get some sleep, uh, steal yourself, get psyched for part two, which we will drop tomorrow. That's Wednesday morning, August 11th. If you've been enjoying this podcast uh, with Chris, you'll want to come back tomorrow and hear part two when we will talk about Trump, the Republican Party, the future of democracy, and all of that, the insurrection and be curious to hear what he has to say about it because we have not heard from him at length on any of these matters since he left the air in March of 2020. So join us for part two of our discussion with Chris Matthews here on Hell and High Water, part two tomorrow, Wednesday morning, August 11th. See you then.